Thank you, Johnny and Jen and Lauren, for preparing us for the preaching of God's Word. And uh, I'm excited about this passage that we're in. We're going to study Matthew chapter 18. This is the fourth discourse in Matthew's Gospel. Remember, Matthew alternates between narrative sections and discourse or sermons or messages from the Lord. And so, so far we've seen the introduction to Matthew in chapters 1 to 4. We've seen the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. Then we saw narrative showing Jesus' power and authority. Remember there was 10 miracles in chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 10 was the message on missions, the second discourse. And after that, Jesus gave his disciples, he gave the 12 authority to cast out demons and heal the sick and preach the gospel. And we saw the narrative there, uh, chapters 11 and 12, where we saw really the rejection of Israel. They had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Then the third discourse was the parables in Matthew 13, and Jesus was beginning to teach his disciples a a little bit of a, a change in the kingdom programs, that there would be this time between the two comings of Messiah when the word of God would go forth and people would respond variously to that word. And then in chapters 14 to 17, we saw the various responses, even in Jesus' own day, to the king. The uh, Pharisees and the scribes continued to reject him. The disciples were beginning to understand and, and really came to the place where they did understand who Jesus was, but yet they were still those of little faith. And then there's the response of the crowds who don't really understand who Jesus is, but they know him as a, a healer and a miracle worker. And through it all, through the whole book of Matthew so far, we have really come to see who Jesus is and what he requires of his disciples. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and we must listen to him, we must follow him, we must obey him. And now chapter 18 is a message on relationships among Jesus' disciples. And so the question comes then, maybe, how should we relate to one another? Who is the greatest among us? That's how the disciples asked it. And there's a lot to learn in this section. Let's, let's read it together. We're going to read the whole of Matthew 18 here together right now this morning. And by together, I mean I read and you maybe follow along in your Bible. But Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them. He healed them there. Well, that's the section that we're going to be studying over the next number of weeks. This morning, we're going to focus in really on verses 1 to 4, 
And there's debate as we kind of just kind of ease into our passage this morning. There's debate on how to divide the sermon. Some people see this as two sections with two questions. There's the question in verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then in verse 21, another question from Peter, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Others see two sections, one going to the end of verse 14 that focus on our relationships, kind of generally our relationships, and then part two is on reconciliation and forgiveness starting in verse 15 to the end. Others see three parts, verses 1 to 14 as one section, verses 15 to 20 as kind of a a hinge between the two sections, and then verses 21 to 35. Another commentator said, quote, All in all, it seems better to take it as Matthew has given us and study it as one piece of teaching. That's from Leon Morris in the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, I believe that it all goes together and that we do need to study it as one piece of teaching, but I still think it's helpful to break it into some smaller sections. Like I said, today we're going to focus on verses 1 to 4, which deal with humility and greatness. Next week, we're going to see how to treat one another and show hospitality to one another. And with that, we're going to see how not to treat one another. We are warned about causing another believer to sin. And it's actually really startling there. It would be better to die than to cause another believer to sin. Look at verse 6 again. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Wow, that is, that is severe. That is, you know, it would be better to die a horrible death because we're going to look at that and it, it, that really is a horrible death. It would be better to die a horrible death than to lead another believer into sin. And because of that, we need to deal with sin severely. We need to start with our own sin. Verse 8 and 9 come back to what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. That if uh, our eye causes us to sin, we're to tear it out. If our hand causes us to sin, we're to cut it off. And so we deal severely with our own sin. So we deal with our own sin. Verses 10 to 14 then kind of focus on one another's sin. And it shows us that we're to pursue one another when we go astray. We are the father's sheep. And since the father is like a shepherd who cares for his sheep, we also should care when a fellow believer goes astray. And so we leave the 99 and and go after the one. Verses 15 to 20 are going to show us what to do when another believer sins and how to approach the whole situation. And then verses 20 to 21 to 35 teach us about forgiveness by way of the parable of the unforgiving servant. And so that's where we're going over the next number of weeks. John MacArthur kind of summarized the sermon this way, and I'll just quote him here. He says, quote, the first lesson in this masterful sermon is that everyone who enters the kingdom does so as a child, verses 1 to 4. Jesus then teaches that all of us in the kingdom must be treated as children, verses 5 to 9, cared for as children, verses 10 to 14, 
disciplined as children, verses 15 to 20, and forgiven as children, verses 21 to 35, end quote. Well, we're going to look at our text again, verses 1 to 4, under four headings, and we're going to see this morning, the first of all, the question about greatness in verse 1. Then we're going to see the illustration of greatness in verse 2, the danger of artificial greatness in verse 3, and then the way to genuine greatness in verse 4. And everything in this section centers on greatness. I, I called this message the greatness of lowliness, the greatness of lowliness. And as we ease into our text again this morning, we, one of the things that, that we need to see right away is that when we ask about greatness, our Lord thinks in terms of our relationships with one another. Can you see that already? That, that when the, when the disciples ask the Lord about greatness, he immediately turns to everything that involves our relationships with one another. And so the disciples ask, who is the greatest? And Jesus answers in terms of humility that no longer desires to be great, but instead serves others. The greatest person is the one who views themselves as the least and serves others. And especially they serve others by dealing with sin, first with their own sin and then by helping others with their sin. Now, I don't know how to adequately express this, but so much of practical Christianity is in the way that we relate to one another. A great Christian is one who is marked by great relationships. And when I say that, I don't mean that, that we're what we call a, a great guy or that we're somebody who's maybe fun to be around or something like that. There's, there's really nothing shallow in what Jesus is talking about here. There's a, there's a depth here. There's a righteousness here. There's a, a concern about sins and others. There's a willingness to forgive. There's a receiving of others in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And so there's this hospitality, even to the weakest. And we're to do that, we're to receive them, even as we would receive Christ. And so the community that God is building is one that loves one another, and loves one another such that they put away sin, that they, that they help one another to follow Jesus Christ and live in the way that he has commanded us to live. And so we don't ignore sin or condone sin. We cut it off. We go and and discuss it when others are caught in it. And we are quick to forgive because we recognize that, that we are those whom God has forgiven. We see ourselves as forgiven. And so we are quick to forgive. And so we get this picture of a community that's growing together, that's putting off sin that's receiving one another as they would receive the Lord himself. See, relationships, godly relationships, that's the Christian life lived out in the world. That's, that's how we live it out practically. The Christ-like person is going to have fruitful relationships that impact people away from sin and towards Jesus Christ. The Spirit-filled person is going to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And again, what is that? I think you know it already, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. That's Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And if you think about it, all of those things are things that make relationships go smoothly. All of those things are things that help people live in harmony. Again, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and, and all of those fruits of the Spirit are really designed to help us in our relationships to glorify God. But as we think about that, we need to remember with this that if we do what our Lord lays out here in Matthew 18, if we seek to be a community that really, really deals with sin and and takes it deathly serious, our Lord says here that that won't mean that that everyone is going to love us or that every relationship will be perfect. Remember last week we saw that principle in our Lord that, that he did what he could not to offend. Where he could not offend them, he didn't offend them, but he also so offended the world that they wanted him crucified. And so we have this bit of a paradox now. A Christian is one marked by healthy, deep relationships full of love for each other with joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But at the same time also, as we saw in chapter 10, that brother will deliver brother over to death and a father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my namesake. That's Matthew 10, 21 and 22. And the next verse tells us that we will be persecuted. And in verse 25, Jesus says, if they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And so if they malign Jesus, they also will malign us. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that we are blessed when others revile us and persecute us and utter all kinds of evil against us falsely on his account. And when those things happen, we should do all that we can to reconcile those relationships. As Paul says in Romans twelve eighteen, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And the author of Hebrews, to those who are being persecuted, he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness <coughs> without which no one will see the Lord. Relationships are so important to God. They're so important to God, but they're, they're to be relationships that move us away from sin and towards Jesus Christ. And when Jesus thinks about greatness among his people, he thinks about one who forgives, one who serves others, one who is lowly to the point that they have no thoughts of greatness. They only think about trying to help others to follow Jesus Christ. And so let's get into our text line by line. We're in the point number one, heading number one, the question about greatness in verse one. The question about greatness, verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now at that time is a very general time marker. They were in Capernaum and, 
And, and this was before they headed to Jerusalem for the last time where Jesus would be crucified. Now the ESV leaves out a connecting word in, in what the disciples said. It's literally, the question is literally, who then is the greatest? Who then is the greatest? And then is meant to connect us back to something, but it's hard exactly to know what. And the ESV leaves it out kind of for a smoother English like they sometimes do. But as we try to think about what is this then there, I think what we recognize is that Peter has been very prominent in the gospel so far. Remember, he's the one who walked on water. He was blessed by the Father with revelation that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said that he would build his church on Peter, and Peter was especially chosen among the three to, to see the transfiguration. The three, uh, He was part of the three among the twelve. Most recently, Peter participated in the miraculous fishing incident and found a coin in the mouth of the fish to pay the temple tax for himself and for Jesus. And perhaps it was that latest miracle that prompted the disciples to ask, who then is the greatest? After all, Peter had just done a a great thing by the Lord's power. Jesus has already spoken in this gospel about degrees of greatness in the kingdom. And to see that, I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at Matthew 5 and verse 19. Matthew 5, 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now remember there that these commandments are the commandments that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. And relaxing them, he says, will result in a lower position in the kingdom. To do them, what we call obedience, is going to result in being called great in the kingdom of heaven. And notice verse 20, and uh, again, look at it there. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which again is very similar to what Jesus says in verse 3 of our text, Where in Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so to be called great in the kingdom means doing and teaching what Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, even in the Great Commission, it's to teach them to observe everything that I commanded you. And so that is the way to greatness according to what Jesus had previously taught. And if we do these things, if we, if we follow the commands and live by the Sermon on the Mount that the Lord gave us, then our righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. But if we don't do that, Jesus says we will never, and that's an important word there, we will never enter the kingdom. Now on another occasion, Jesus taught about degrees of greatness in the kingdom, and that's in Matthew chapter 11. Talking about John the Baptist, go ahead and look at that. Matthew 11 11. (coughs) Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, 
There is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so here we have one who is least in the kingdom, and that one is greater than John, who was the greatest of all men. And I think the way that we understood this and the way to understand this is that Jesus is talking about the future kingdom. And so that the least person in that future kingdom is going to be greater than John the Baptist was at the time that Jesus spoke these words in Matthew 11 and uh, 11, 11. And so Jesus has indicated that there are degrees of greatness in the kingdom, and those degrees of greatness would largely be tied to degrees of reward. And so the greater our service on earth, the greater our eternal rewards in heaven. And so there's a connection then between greatness now and greatness then. If we're great now, we're going to lay up a, a great reward for the kingdom then. And so the disciples' question then looks at, at both the, the present and the future. Who's the greatest now that's going to have the greatest reward then? Who is the greatest? Now, if we add Mark and Luke, we get a fuller picture of what's happening in this context. Mark, Mark 9.33 says, And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I feel fantastic, by the way. Um, I just... I've just got this little bit of a cold, so I'm, I'm really, I really apologize for, for this. Um, but there's really nothing I can do about it, so we're just going to have to get through this together. So, they're arguing on the way. Luke 9 adds that, the, that Jesus, when they kept silent, he knew the reasoning of their hearts, and it would seem that at some point they, they broke the silence that Mark talks, talk, talks about, and, and they, they asked this question, who is the greatest? And what they want is they want the highest position. They want the, they want the status. They want the authority. Jesus has been teaching them that, that their way is to be the way of the cross, and that they must give up their lives for his sake, that they must deny themselves. And when you think about that, great people, at least in the ancient Near East Roman kind of world, they're great people, they don't die on a cross. And so they should have already known that this argument was out of place, and they must have known because when they were asked about it, they kept silent, they were ashamed. But this argument about who is the greatest is going to come up again and again among the disciples, right up until the cross. And every time Jesus predicts his death, they start to argue about which one of them will have first place. And it must have really grieved the Lord. But as soon as they they realize Jesus is going to die and he's going to be gone, and then the the thought comes up immediately, well then, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to lead us? And it's not hard to see that this kind of a mindset would have created conflict among the disciples. Every one of them wanted to be exalted. Nobody wanted to be humble. They wanted to be served, and there was no room to serve others. And so they wanted the status 
and the authority. And so that was the question, the, the argument and the question that leads to this. Who is the greatest? Now Jesus gives us the illustration of greatness. And that's number two in your outline. Number two, the illustration of greatness. And what Jesus is about to teach is so radical that shock tactics are in order. The disciples really, what they need is a complete reversal of direction. He says in verse 3 that they need to turn, to be converted, some translations have. But before that, he gives them this picture of what makes one great in the kingdom. Look at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. He put a child in the midst of them. Child could refer to any age between infancy and puberty. And so what is that? Something like between two and and 13 or so. Now this child was old enough to hear Jesus call and and come. But whatever age this child was, and and whether even if it was a he or she, we don't know despite the, the English translations, kind of you don't really call a child it in English, but you can in Greek. But there's this child, male or female, we're not really sure, but whatever they were and however old they were between 2 and 13, they would have looked pretty insignificant in the midst of all the grown men. And that's really the point. Jesus is going to use the child as an illustration of greatness. Now we have to be careful how we interpret this. We always have to be careful when when it comes to interpretation because we can either get it right or we can get it wrong. And there are correct and incorrect interpretations of Scripture. Our goal is to understand what Jesus meant by what he said or what Matthew meant by what he wrote. And what Matthew or the human author of Scripture meant is what God meant. And so our goal is always to get to the author's intended meaning, which is God's meaning. And so what does it mean? What what does this illustration of the child signify? And here's where we need to be careful not to bring in something that's not here or something that's not intended by Matthew or Jesus. Jesus put the child in the midst, verse 2. He says in verse 3, become like children, become as the child. Then he says in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child. And verse 4 is really the key to understand what it means to become like children in verse 3 and what the child in the midst of them illustrates in verse 2. See, there's a lot of ways that we could become like children. And we could come up with a list of, of characteristics of children. But the key thing that Jesus wants his disciples to emulate is humility. Now, children... Are you listening, children? Children are not necessarily humble. You know, you get a bunch of kids together. You, you, you parents know this. You get a bunch of kids together and in about 10 minutes, they'll be talking about who does the greatest handstand or who does the, the, the fastest running or who is the strongest or who is the best at whatever they're doing. That, that argument comes up. And so it's not necessarily that children are so humble that we need to be like them. If you have kids, you know that it doesn't take long for their sin nature to be manifested, just like it is with adults. But the point here is, is best seen when we kind of compare it with the ancient Near Eastern view of children. You see, children were understood to be a blessing from the Lord, but they were still children. 
and they had no status as children. They were really at the mercy of adults. They were, they were really the lowest of the low on the spectrum of who is the greatest. And so they were the lowest. And if we looked at that group of disciples with the child in the midst, everyone would know that the child was the least of them just simply because it was a child. And, and I think the, the understanding of that would have even been stronger in that day when they had such a low view of the status of children. Now, a child might desire prestige or power or any of those things, but they could not have it so long as they were children. And so they had to accept their low position in society. And we can now see the image that our Lord is painting here. You guys want greatness? You want to be great? Well, get to the place where you're so low that you can't even imagine trying to be great. He's showing the disciples that they need to see themselves as those with no status. And so that's the illustration. Let's go now, number three, and look at the danger of artificial greatness. Good thing my sermon's actually shorter today because we need some more time for other things here. All right, let's talk about the danger of artificial greatness, verse 3. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is now a warning, and, and the, Jesus is warning these men that want to be great, that if you continue, if they continue on that path, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's a strong warning if you think about it. This is, this is really strong. The Greek word uh, translated never, the words really is ume, and it's the strongest negative in the Greek. It's an emphatic negative, never. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying then, in effect, never mind trying to be the greatest. You're not even going to get into the kingdom unless you change. You see that? Never mind trying to get to the greatest spot. You're not even in unless something changes in your attitude. And I hope that you see these words and you think, wow, Think about yourself. Have I turned? Have I been converted as some translations have it? Have I become like a child? Because if these things aren't true of us, if you or I have not done these things, or better, if these changes have not happened to us, then we will never enter heaven. And it won't matter what prayer you prayed or what aisle you walked or what commitment that you think you made, Jesus is very clear, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you turn and become like children. And now that we know the danger of not doing these things, we need to really understand what these things are. And the first word here is turn. And turning can refer to any kind of a turning motion of turning something from one way to another way or turning somebody. 
to turn around or to turn towards someone or something. It can mean to carry something back to where it was, to bring something back, to return something. It can mean to turn away in the sense of not being associated with someone or something. But it's also used like the Hebrew word for turning in the sense of repentance or of an inward change to turn around, to change our legitimate translations. And that's why many translations translated something like the Legacy Standard Bible does, verse 3, Legacy Standard Bible, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we could ask then, does Jesus mean that the the disciples weren't converted at this point? And I think that's to take it almost too far. I like how one commentator put it, and I'll just quote him, that you're going to have to think a little bit with R.T. France, the way he words things, but he says this, quote, that is probably to import too rigid a typology of saved and lost into the phrase, but it strongly warns them that the concern for status which they have just displayed is not compatible with God's scale of values and that true discipleship must involve the eradication of this natural human tendency. And so I don't think we can say that the disciples are saved or not saved. That's kind of to import some some later theology that they don't even really understand. But they need to repent of this desire for greatness. And they need to go in the exact opposite direction. They need to entirely change their minds about what's important. And the direction, the opposite direction that they need to go is this. They need to turn from their desire for greatness and become like children. And what that means again is that they would see that they have no claims to greatness. That they are utterly dependent and that they are too low to be concerned with who is the greatest. And that's really the position of a true believer, isn't it? Remember, we are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3. We have nothing to bring God but our sin. We have nothing to offer. We're, we're spiritually bankrupt and we recognize ourselves as those who have sinned against a holy God. To put in the, in the terms of the parable later in Matthew 18, we owed 10,000 talents and we had an unpayable debt of sin, and we begged for mercy. Because mercy, when we began the Christian life, mercy was our only hope. God's grace was our only hope. There was nothing that we could do but ask Him to cover the debt of our sin for Christ's sake. And so like a dependent child, we depend on God for everything. And we recognize ourselves as we come to God that we have really nothing to offer. We have no status. We have no greatness. We have really nothing. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. And so we're too lowly for such things, just like the child in the midst of the twelve. He's not going to stand up and argue that He's the greatest of them all. Jesus says, unless we turn and become like children in this way, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is similar to what he said in John chapter 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And again in verse 5, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
And so we must be born again, and in that new birth we recognize ourselves as deserving nothing but God's wrath. And we accept our lowly position before God and that we have nothing to offer, and then that is going to impact how we view others. (coughs) See, as soon as we begin to see ourselves as better than others or attempt to raise ourselves above others or wonder where we stand in comparison to others, we've forgotten who we are before God. And if that's our attitude, then we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's the warning of the danger of artificial greatness. And so let's look number four now, the the way to genuine greatness in verse four, the way to genuine greatness. Verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so here is the way to genuine greatness. Jesus now comes to answer their question. To be truly great, we must go in the opposite direction. If you want to be first in this race, you must be last. The way up is down. Whoever wants to be exalted must humble himself. Now that word, whoever there, opens this up to everyone. And this is a, an opportunity for everyone here. If you want to enter the kingdom, this word, whoever, means that you can come this way. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your sin. Come to Jesus with your sin and give your life over to Him and He will forgive you and He will cleanse you and He will welcome you into His family. <laughs> Now, this applies to the believer as well. If you're a believer in Christ, we could ask this of you. Would you be great? Not in the sense of of status or superiority like the 12 were arguing for, but in the sense of serving God well in this world. In the sense of laying up treasures in heaven. Would you be great to the glory of God? Would you bring glory to God in this world? Then here is the way to true greatness that honors God Jesus says, humble yourself. And the sense of this word is is more like humiliate yourself. And it has to do with this idea of losing prestige or status. Let prestige go. Let your status go. Accept a low status. Take the lowest place. Take the inferior position. And as we're going to learn later in the book of Matthew, become the servant of all. Serve others with no thought of being greater than them. That is the way to be great in the kingdom of God. To be great, we must see ourselves as low, which again is what we are before our great and awesome and holy God. Now Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3, and let's go there and and look at that for a moment. Um, Philippians chapter 2 I'll start reading in verse 3 where Paul says there, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, which is really what the disciples were doing and they're arguing about who would be the greatest. They were, they were, they were exercising this selfish ambition. They wanted to raise themselves above others. Paul says, don't do anything from that kind of a motive. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. And the idea there is humility of 
the mind. There's a, there's a humble and, and a word for mind there together. And so think about yourself in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, this humble mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. This attitude of humility is ours in Jesus Christ. Because when we come to Christ, we come with this bankruptcy. We come with nothing. We bring only our sin and our our deserving of wrath, and we recognize that we deserve nothing but God's judgment, and yet that's not what we receive in Him. And so we're we're to be like Christ in this way. This is the mind of Christ, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, (coughs) though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." And so what Paul wants us to do is to be like Jesus Christ. To humble ourselves like Christ humbled himself. Look at at the greatness of, of all of who he was, and yet he would come down to this world in order to pay the penalty for our sin. That he would come down and and be a servant. And if the Lord of glory can humble himself and come and, and serve us and give his life for us, then shouldn't his servants also have this same mind and humble ourselves and serve one another? And not try to be better than others, but to think of yourself as, as more, in, more uh, insignificant than others. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. <coughs> our text says whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and so brothers and sisters this is the way to greatness we must humble ourselves first before god and then also humble ourselves before men and if we are we will receive one another and we will take sin seriously And we'll be careful not to lead another believer into sin. And when someone goes astray into sin, we will pursue them and warn them and we will be quick to forgive and we will be merciful because we will know ourselves as those who need mercy as well. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and we do pray that you would give us this mind, that you would humble us, Lord. And even humiliate us and help us to accept a low status and to be like Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be great in our relationships in the way that you describe in Matthew 18. And and we pray that you would bless our study of this section for your glory in our lives and in our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.